0: are blessed again tonight to be able to assemble together, to be able to sing praise to the Almighty, and I've enjoyed singing the songs we have sung tonight and the praise that are included in those songs, to be able to pray to our God and petition Him for those things which we feel we are in need of. And now at this time, we are privileged to be able to open our Bibles together and to study and to try to learn more of what God would have us to be. Tonight is the question and answer night, and I will tell you that as I approach these questions, I do so humbly, recognizing that no one of us knows it all, but there are answers that can be found. We may not always know the answer immediately. We may have to search for it. We may have to look for it. We may have to be careful that we divide God's word correctly, but at the end, I think those answers can be found. And questions are good because often questions are seeking information. Brother Kirk read to us just a few moments ago, those good-hearted people came to John the Baptist and they wanted to know what it was that they needed to do to be pleasing to God. And everyone's life has something that is very important to them that they need to know and understand. But we always need to make sure that when we provide an answer, If someone comes to us and wants to know the reason of hope that is within us, yet with meekness and fear, as we present those answers, it should always be, as 1 Peter 4 verse 11 says, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Now, each month I have tried to point out that there are different types of questions. There are some questions, for instance, that are textual those that are drawn directly from God's Word. And we'll have a couple of those tonight. There are those that are topical, and that is that they relate to a biblical topic. And one of them is not only textual, but part of it is topical. And then finally, there are practical questions, things that relate to what should I do in a given situation under a certain set of circumstances. And that's what our first question will be Tonight, let's begin by looking at the first question, and I think this was a very well-worded, honest question by the person who submitted it. What are euphemisms? Are they a bad habit that needs to be broken, or are they sinful? Now, to answer the first part of that question is to go to the dictionary. It means a mild or an indirect word or expression substituted for one considered to be too harsh or too blunt and referring to something unpleasant or embarrassing. Now, most of us, when we talk about euphemisms, sometimes we think that they're all bad, but the truth is not all euphemisms are bad, and the Bible uses several of these. For instance, when we start talking about someone who passes away, passing away is a euphemism itself. We generally will use the term sleep. And in fact, if you'll remember when our Lord was told that Lazarus was sick in John chapter 11, he said, Lazarus sleeps. And their response was, if he sleeps, he'll get better. But he was talking about the sleep of death. There's another one that is used in the Bible. For instance, when a husband and a wife have those intimate sexual relations that produces a child, it says Adam knew Eve, Abraham knew Sarah, saying that he knows her as a euphemism for their sexual act. I will point out to you that some of our modern translations try to also make sure that we do so in such a way that we communicate idioms where they're not necessarily offensive in our society. For instance, there's a word that's used in the Hebrew Old Testament that refers to a man urinating on a wall. And it is referring to a man, who, to one who stands to urinate. That's not exactly something that we generally want to communicate. And that's the reason why in the New King James, in 1 Samuel 25 22, He says, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. The King James translates it exactly as the original language, which is a little bit more uh, direct than we would want in our language, the way we'd express it today. And so euphemisms are not all bad. However, there's a problem when Christians use euphemisms for vulgarity and profanity. And many people will carelessly use some of these words and say them, not realizing that they are just substituting a milder word for a curse word. And I will tell you, particularly a lot of our younger people who've grown up using social media will occasionally use abbreviation, which is really a euphemism, euphemism, is when they use it to let those letters stand for something that is vulgar and vile and we'll still use them anyway. You know, in Ephesians 4, verse 29, Paul says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. We ought to be the kind of people whose language is such that nobody could say, That's ugly, and they shouldn't say that. In chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, But let fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. Christians need to live above that. And in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, he says, let your speech always be with grace. Season with a little salt that you may know how you ought to answer each one. But now I will tell you there are some other types of euphemisms that are also not good. For instance, when people begin to use euphemisms for God's name, and in doing so they flippantly, carelessly use his name. As some sort of curse or byword, for instance, and I'm not calling these out for any purpose other than to say let's not use them. When people use terms like golly and gosh and gad, or for Jesus they use gee or geez or she's or gee whiz, jeepers, or for the Lord they use lordy or lord or laudy. I don't know if you remember Exodus chapter 20 verse 7 in the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Folks, those are some pretty stern words. Matthew 12 verses 36 and 37. Jesus said, but I say to you for every idle word that men may speak, They will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. So to answer the question, what is a euphemism? It's a substituted word. Is it a bad habit? Well, not necessarily. If you're using a euphemism for a word that would shock someone's sensibilities but is not sinful, that's all right. However, if you're using it to avoid using direct profanity or to use the Lord's name, it's wrong and you ought not do it. And if it's become a habit, as uh, one of the fellows put the other day, he said, just stop it. Just stop it. Okay, question number two. This is a textual question. And uh, I invite you to turn to Micah chapter four, verse six. And the question says, in Micah four, six, it says, the Lord... "...afflicted the lame and outcast." Is this saying that God himself afflicts and not Satan? Did they cause it to happen or were they born born that way? Well, let me try to answer the question the best that I possibly can. First of all, this question is very similar to the one asked of Jesus in John chapter 9. And let's look at verses 2 and 3. His disciples asked Him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Oh, that's interesting. Because the Lord did not say that this man who was born blind was born blind because his parents sinned. He wasn't born blind because he sinned. That's the way so many people think, that there is a direct correlation. Here's someone suffering in this life, and the suffering must necessarily be because they did something wrong. It's obvious from our Lord here, there are times when we suffer when we didn't do anything wrong. And I suggest that sometimes people who are suffering with such dreaded disease not get the idea that God is somehow punishing me. I think it's also important to notice here that this man wasn't born that way for the purpose of this. Now, I will tell you that this is a very different context in Micah chapter 4 verse 6 because the terms lame and outcast are used figuratively. He's talking about the nation. And he's talking about the nation now is afflicted to the point where they're like a lame man. They're like an outcast, someone who's been thrown out. And they're, they're unwanted and thrown away. I will tell you that in this context, God did afflict Israel. Let's look at some passages which I think are very plain and very clear. In Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 15, he says, why do you cry about your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable because of the multitude of your iniquities. Because your sins have increased, I have done these things to you. Now notice, he first says, why do you cry about your affliction? The last thing he says, I have done this to you. Did God afflict them himself or did Satan do it? God did it. Look at chapter 31, verse 28. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy, and to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. God said, I afflicted them. And it was because of what they did that they were afflicted. However, one should not get the idea that God somehow takes pleasure in it. It's not as if God says, Okay, just wait for one of you to do something and then I'm going to get you. Listen to Lamentations chapter 3 and verses 31 through 33 because this presents the follow-up to the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah is saying to them, you better change. You better change. If not, I'm going to afflict you. I will afflict you. I'm going to afflict you. And now you get to the book of Lamentations and they're afflicted. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Notice that word cast off relating to outcasts from Micah 4.6. Though He causes grief, He does cause it, yet He will show compassion according to the multitude of His mercies. For He does not... Afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. I want you to understand the God we serve does not take pleasure in unrighteousness. He doesn't take pleasure in afflicting the wicked. But if we believe what the Bible says, then we do understand that God will afflict those. But someone might say, but did God do this directly occasionally? And the answer is yes. I don't know if you'll remember in Acts 13 when Paul has come to the island of Cyprus. They first came to Salamis then they came around to Paphos on the southern side and they went to that city and there was a proconsul there by the name of Sergius Paulus. And there's a a false prophet, a sorcerer by the name of our Jesus. And it says in verse 8, But Elemas, the sorcerer, for so is his name translated, withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O fool of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the right ways of the Lord? And now indeed, notice carefully, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him. And he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. You see, the hand of the Lord is involved sometimes in directly punishing people for their sins and for their iniquities. We're not in that same sort of situation today where you have an apostle who has miraculous ability, but I will tell you that the hand of the Lord is still active in the world in which we live. But if I take John 9, verses 2 and 3, it's what, as what I learned there, not every instance is a direct punishment from God, but there are some that are direct punishments from God. Now question number three. What is the difference between soul and spirit? Particularly two passages that were listed is Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 and then 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 45. Now you know why I begin not everybody knows at all. This is a tough question to answer. And uh, I'm going to try to do my very best to answer it in a way in which will communicate the correct answer, but not only do that so you can understand it. And I will tell you, there's parts of this that require a little more effort than others. At times, the word appears to be synonyms. And you say, what do you mean by synonyms? As if they can be used interchangeably. Let me give you three passages of Scripture where that's the case. Hannah, in her prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 15, she wants a child. She, she's grieving because she doesn't have a child. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have neither, neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Notice the sorrowful spirit and poured out her soul. I think most of us would say in that context, those words could be interchanged. Or Job chapter 7, verse 11. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak of the anguish of my spirit. I will complain of the bitterness of my soul. If I take those two phrases, anguish of spirit and bitterness of soul, you'd say, well, those sound a lot alike. Isaiah 26, verse 9. With my soul I have desired you in the night. Yes, my spirit within me I will seek you early. Notice. Soul and spirit, both of them appear to be interchangeable. So you say, wow, how do you divide them? How do you change them? They appear in a number of contexts with various meanings. Now, what I'm going to try to do in the answer is to provide two things. Number one, the lexical, that is the dictionary definitions. And number two, I want to look at the passages that have been put before us. Now here's where it gets to be a little bit tricky. The word soul it is translated in the Bible, comes from the Hebrew word Nephesh. It's translated soul 278 times in the new King James. It means breath or life is what the lexical definition is but it is also translated by 84 other different words in the Old Testament. So you say, wow, if there's that many different words that sometimes translated soul, but sometimes it's translated something else. When you go to the Greek New Testament, the word psyche or suke is the word there, and it's translated soul 55 times, but it's also translated life 33 times. So you can say, well, well, I'm not sure. Well, if I put it on a chart, a pie chart, you can see 278 times it's translated as soul, 37 times the New Testament is translated by the word suke. And you say, wow, that's, that's confusing me. Well, let me add to that now. The word spirit, the Hebrew word ruach, is translated spirit 215 times, from, and it means breath or wind but it is found 374 times, translated by 25 different words, and of those, some form of wind 101 times. Now, you all see why I said this is a tough one to answer? And the Greek word pneuma, that's a New Testament word for spirit, is translated 347 times as uh, spirit, and it means a blowing wind or sometimes an inner being. And again, if you want to see a pie chart of those that are there. Well, let's take those texts. I'm going to add a third text to it. The first one is found in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23. And as Paul is concluding this first letter to them, he's wishing good for them. And so he says, Now may the God himself... Now, peace himself. Sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. There's the body. There's the spirit. And there's the soul. What is the distinction between them? Hebrews 4 verse 12 For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You see the word soul and spirit. He says the word of God is able to pierce to the point where it's able to provide a division. Now to illustrate how closely related these things are, notice what else he talks about. And of the joints and marrow. Your marrow is the center part of your bone. The joints are very close to it. And if you're able to cut so ever so carefully, you can cut between the two of them, but they are so, so closely aligned. And that's the same thing with soul and spirit. But the Word of God is that precise, so to speak. And it's able to be so precise that it can even discern the very intent of my own heart. So soul and spirit, the life of man to the point of what he lives and then his eternal part. Now, let me take 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, before we try to tie this together. As it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. I will tell you the original word there is psyche, meaning soul. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. and The word pneuma is used there. I think there is a little bit of distinction to be made here. And I'd like to provide some explanations. Where the words are distinguished, soul generally refers to the natural part of man. And the spirit generally refers to that eternal part. It's worth noting that the adjective psychikos is based upon psyche and is often translated natural in the Bible. For instance, even in 1 Corinthians 15, there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. That's the way it's used there. And uh, talking about the physical part of life versus that eternal part of life. I know that's probably not the easiest answer or the answer that you would like to be so clear, but that's exactly what is found in the original language as well as what we have in the Bible. But I don't think it is that significant because both of the words appear together. And since they appear together, whether the soul means, as we sing in the song, where the soul never dies, or whether it is referring to the life force of man, or whether the spirit, we say the spirit will be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, we know that man has more than one part, that he has a body, he has a soul, and he has a spirit. Questions about Bible topics are important. But let's make sure that we're asking and we're seeking the answer for the really serious ones. Like, what must I do to be saved? That's the question that everybody ought to ask. Where I am and what I am doing, what would it take for me to be saved? For some of you, it may take... You've got to repent of your sins, confess your faith, and be baptized. And if that's where you are, you need to ask that question, and you need to answer it. For some of the rest of us, it may mean that I've got to change my life the way I'm living. I've become a Christian, but I've got to make some changes. For others' of us, it may mean that I'm doing the best that I know how to do with what I've been given, and I'm going to continue to try to grow I'm going to try to improve, and I'm going to try to remain faithful to God. I think about that question that the tax collectors and the soldiers and all those men that came to John the Baptist ask in Luke, when they teach Teacher, what shall we do? That ought to be the kind of question that as we go out tonight, should not be hung up so much on technicalities but on the basis of what would God have me to do this week? How would he have me to talk? How would he have me to live? Those are some very important ones. And what is also important that a person gets their answer from the Bible and acts accordingly. Tonight, you know what you need to do. If you don't, please ask. If you say, I'm not sure of what I need to do, please ask. We'll stay with you as long as necessary to try to provide you that answer. If you are a person who knows what you need to do, that's what this time has been set aside for, for you to render obedience to the gospel. When we sing this song, if you need to respond, would you come while together we stand and sing?